0: Go to your room. (laughs) If you were here last week, that's what you heard. Go to your room. And you know the temptations that we have uh, as Christians when we're told to go to our rooms and keep quiet. In fact, I received some mail this week. (laughs) Phone calls, pleasant conversations in aisle six, wherever it was. Uh, And you gave me plenty of opportunities to clarify myself. I was reading just this last week uh, an old book that I had for a long time, written in 1967, called An Incendiary Fellowship, written by an old Quaker named Elton Trueblood. And he said that in his day, remember this was 50 years ago, that there was a great paradox in the church. The church was, he said, on the one hand, more popular, and on the other, more unpopular than it had ever been. He said, on the one hand, we're a majority, and yet on the other hand, we're a minority. He could have said, we're a remnant. He said, we're a majority because we live in a country where Christianity is still the most cited, the most believed, the most professed religion. Most of our chaplains come from the Christian religion. Christianity is pretty well embedded in all levels of leadership. Churches are still there, anyway. But he said we're a minority because there is inside of old and powerful churches a small remnant of people who are living radically different than most of Christendom. They're a minority even among Christians because they read the Scripture and they actually do what it says. And because they do this, their lives are fundamentally different and they're small. Then he says, they may be a minority, but they are very powerful and they can become even more powerful by understanding the times in which they live and it helped me to clarify what we were thinking about last week so I'll do publicly what I did in aisle six when the culture tells us to go to our room and to submit we are to go to our room and submit because we are sent there by God not by the people, the media, the leaders, society, the world, that we keep trying to blame. It is actually God who has marginalized His people because He can do things with us out here that He can't do with us while we're in there, in the center. But to be on the margins does not mean we have lost power. It simply means we have to find another kind of power, people. There's an old power and there's a new power. And the old power tries to rule society by changing its laws and getting its leaders elected. But the new power gets underneath society and simply encourages the virtues that we affirm. That makes sense? So it's not so much that we're trying to be in front of people... But when you're moved to the margins, you get underneath people and you lift them up in the right ways. Think of it as the difference, well, this is going to be a stereotype and so you'll catch it. It's kind of the difference between a mom and a dad in a home, right? In some homes. Maybe your home. When you're a child... Your father rules the house, at least my house he did. Your your dad never says, wait till your mother gets home. But your mother says, wait till your dad gets home. Because you know when dad gets home, there is a day of reckoning. Are you with me? So he leads with that kind of authority. But while he is leading in that way, the mother is quietly getting underneath the children and building layers of trust, encouraging things she believes in. So that when the child becomes a teenager, he starts to outgrow the authority that his dad used to have. Dad can't push him around anymore. He's bigger than Dad. Now all of a sudden, the one who's more powerful becomes the mother. As a young adult, he's no longer afraid his dad will kill him. He's afraid he'll break his mama's heart. It's a softer, more subtle, form of power. You might say, in very rough terms, that the call to the margin is a call to drop the power of a dad and learn the power of a mom. It's a power that can be hurt, disappointed, but it cannot abandon the people that it loves. So we must never think of this as a loss of power. We think of it as a call to a new kind of power. There. Can we go now? It leads to the second a temptation that we have when we're sent to the margins. And it is the temptation to be relevant. Whenever we get sent from the room, or from the living room to our rooms, and told to go sit quietly in the corner, there is a perennial temptation to try to read what the culture values and try to become like the culture so they will value us. We want to be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be taken seriously. And we want to be liked. And so frequently, when sent to the margins, we will look to the dominant culture and say, what do they still like? And then we try to become a Christian version of that. The word relevant, by the way, is an old Latin term that means sufficient or pertaining to the times. So, when we strive to be relevant, It means we're paying attention to the times and then we're adjusting some things in order to stay pertinent to the times. The danger is that by doing this, we will start to find our identity not from inside of us, but from things outside of us from people who are not one of us. So our identity, and I fear this especially for the young contemporary church right now, who I think is still searching for its soul and its identity. It's a fresh renewal of God, I'm sure of this, but I think they're still searching for an identity. And the concern, is that they will anchor that identity in the culture that they're trying to serve rather than in the Lord. This is the 830 service. You should have loved that statement. Now, whenever we look to the culture and try to read the times in order to adjust ourselves, we are doing a fundamentally good thing, church. Uh, The question is, how do we remain relevant when we've been sent to our rooms? And there's a couple of ways to be always relevant. One of them is to change. The other... Is to not change okay this is 830 you love that one <laughs> they'll hate it in an hour when you change what you shouldn't change or you won't change what you should change you become irrelevant So there's two kinds of relevance. One of them is, uh, is to be popular. The Latin term for popular literally means according to the masses. And so when you strive to be relevant, By becoming popular, you are playing to the masses that are around you asking yourself, what does society value because that's what I'm going to become? Uh, You become a Christian icon of whatever is popular or trendy at the time. You don't need illustrations. They're already going through your heads as they are mine. The other form of relevance is to be prophetic, not popular. When we practice a prophetic relevance in a culture that is always changing, we're not asking ourselves, what does society value? We're asking ourselves, what does society need? Because that's what I'm going to become. So we look at our culture and we search for things where values have eroded. We look for things that have atrophied. We look for deficiencies within the culture, lackings, things that were lost. And we say to ourselves, society needs these things, even though they have lost these things. And so we strive to become prophetic. In the words of Guinness, we become untimely people. We become untimely because our home is not in this age. We are born of a vision, of a commitment that does not come from this world. It comes from out of this world. And as unpopular as it may be, it is necessary in this world. Are you with me so far? Jeremiah writes to a group of people that are being sent to their rooms. He writes on the eve of Israel's exile into Babylon. And they don't like it any more than we do. And he says to them, as I said last week, you are being sent by God, not by the culture. But God is going to do a work in you while you are in your room. Now, what he says in Jeremiah chapter 10, he says because he's afraid that when we get sent to the room, we will try to change everything in order to fit into the culture that just kicked us out. And so, what he says at the beginning is this is what the Lord says do not learn the ways of the nations or the customs of the people, for they're worthless. He's afraid that once we get marginalized, we will look for ways to fit in. And he's concerned that when we do this, we will lose our difference and therefore, are no longer good to society. What are these gods? Read descriptions of them. He says, They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with a chisel. He adorns it with silver and gold, and he fastens it with a hammer and nails so it doesn't totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Their idols cannot speak, and they must be carried because they can't walk. Don't fear them. They can do you no harm. Neither can they do you any good. Now, every time we read this, or I read it, I think to myself that idolatry is an old problem and that we don't have this problem, in our culture today. At least we don't have it in college church. We sort of have a pre-entrance exam. You have any idols? You can't come in. Sort of. Right? So you have the idea that the fact that we're here and we're singing songs to Yahweh and we're reading Yahweh's sacred text and we're in a building dedicated to Yahweh with the cross for Yahweh, you have a tendency to think this is not our problem. We have to remember that the problem with an idol is almost never the idol itself. It's the theology that is behind the idol. So people never make an idol and then worship it. Rather, they come to worship something and then they make an idol. Idols do not occur in a vacuum. They surface in any culture, Christian or non, where people are trying to find things that bring meaning, hope, pleasure, security. No one goes looking for an idol. They go looking for things that the idol provides. And then in order that they might make tangible that worship, they make an idol, and they name it. But the idol comes second, not first. So, Jeremiah is not afraid that we will switch from Yahweh to the Babylonian god Marduk. He is afraid that we will gradually begin to worship Yahweh in the language in the theology of Marduk. Let me say it differently. He is afraid that when we come to worship, we will sing the same songs to Yahweh, but our heads will be filled with images of Marduk. So at the end of the day, we will be worshiping Marduk and calling it Yahweh. Now who are these gods? Who provide security, safety, pleasure, meaning, hope, and substance to our lives. He tells us who they are in the passage we just read. These gods, he says, are personal gods. They are gods that are shaped by the people who worship them. They cut a tree, they chisel it the way that they imagine the deity to be, and then they prostrate themselves before it and worship a heightened version of themselves. They do not create the idol of another country. They create the idol that is like the thing they believe is giving them security, hope, and success. So without even trying to become idolaters, they become idolaters. Is there not in the American no, in the American church? is there not a tendency to fashion Yahweh after ourselves until we believe that He wrote the Bible exactly the way we read it? There is a tendency to assign to God the values that we have as Americans. God bless the USA. There is a tendency to think that because God provides good things, He provides only good things, and before long, those good things become the idol itself. Keep reading. He says, like a scarecrow in a melon patch, you have to pick them up and you have to move them, and you set them down. So these false gods that Jeremiah is afraid of, they're not only personal, they're not only shaped after our image, they're portable. They can be moved from one domain or area of our lives, and they can be moved out of other areas. So wherever you see false gods, you would expect to find that God opposing everything that the culture naturally opposes while remaining silent about things where the culture is silent. You would expect that God to say, we believe in creation care. But He will be silent about the human body. He'll be a God who cares a lot about what you do to creation. But He will not say much about what you do to your body. Even though, I might add, it was your body and not creation that was created in His image. When you worship Yahweh, you get the point. He'll save trees and tadpoles, but not babies. So, whenever you see a false god, you see him mimicking the trends and the taboos of any culture while remaining stunningly silent about other areas. That's a false god. Paul said, let God be God and every man a liar. So, Jeremiah says, because he's personal, and because he's portable, you can move him as the trends move to different domains, he's domesticated. Here's what he says, you don't need to be afraid of him, he's safe, he can't hurt you. But because He can't hurt you, He can't help you. If He loves everybody, then He loves your enemies. So suddenly, you are left with a domesticated God, without a mind of His own, who moves only to the areas that you value, and away from the areas when you want to be alone. And as comfortable of a God as He may be, He cannot save you. The only God who can rescue us, church, is a God who is to be feared and revered. So oddly enough, Jeremiah's concern when he speaks about compromise, I was not ready for this. Jeez, what time is it? Oh, yeah, we're good. I was not ready for this. I came into this message thinking that I needed to talk about practices and um, actions where the church has compromised to the world. And what Jeremiah says is that our compromise, our striving to be relevant, is not so much a problem with our actions, it's a problem with our theology that we are taking our cues from the culture and we are silent about issues that are politically incorrect in the name of evangelism. The idea is, but if they like us, if they take us seriously, if they will listen to us, then we can reach them. Can I offer another way? It would be a prophetic relevance. A prophetic relevance witnesses to its culture not by things that it is changing, but by things that it doesn't change. Now, let me be specific because, again, I'm afraid of what you will be thinking. Yes, that's exactly right, Pastor Steve. Now go back and do it the right way. Listen, please. We become a witness to society when we change the things we should, and we won't change the things that we shouldn't. And it's a witness. Because it starts with a rock-solid belief in the core of our soul that is rooted in the way we perceive God to be and in the way that we apprehend God. And then when we come into worship, we worship God according to the way that we apprehend Him. And then when we go out into society, we practice daily, we live, we talk, we vote, we spend, we strive to become like the God we worship. Worshiped who is the God we apprehend. What I'm saying is there is a cohesive whole to the way that we live. We do not have random ethics that are suspended in midair with a bunch of proof texts that say you can't do this. Listen, we do not need another form of legalism. What we need are conscientious, thinking Christians who start with God and proceed from there. And He is fundamentally different. And do you know what will happen? You won't be popular. But you'll be consistent. You'll be consistent. And so you will be necessary. Because the way of Jesus Christ... The culture of Christ is the only life that makes sense from the beginning to the end. But we must learn the whole thing, church, and not just random laws. So that's the first way. Prophetic relevance is known for what it doesn't change. It still holds fast to things about God that are unwavering. And so while everything else around it, the style and everything else that people live by may change, there is a rock-solid core running down the center of it. People say to me sometimes, I don't like the way the young people are worshiping. I had this conversation recently with someone not in this church, so relax. Exhale. And and I said, I said, the way that they worship seems less important to me than what they're worshiping. I mean, the core of their worship is what I'm most concerned about. I, I mean, is it not? I think... Approaches certainly have something to do with it. They can be more or less correct, but I'm not concerned that we're getting tempos or styles wrong. I'm concerned that we are still worshiping Yahweh in the language of Marduk. That's what worries me. And I see among our youth a love for Yahweh. I do. Second thing. Therefore, because there are some things that we do not change, the, um, a prophetic relevance will witness not by being similar to society, but by being different from society. Our witness will come out of not our similarities. Ah, see, this is how we're alike. It will come out of our differences. This does not mean we have to lead with our differences. You do that, I don't believe in that. You don't have to do that. What is needed in this day is a quiet, peaceful, holy, courageous, God-fearing, consistent community that practices the same things Together. It's not some lone wolf with a bunch of random convictions. It's a community of people that all live the same way. This, by the way, was what was behind membership commitments that we used to buck all the time, wasn't it? It was saying, like them or hate them, they are a way of saying, this is how this community of people practice holiness. Roll your eyes if you want. But there's a whole bunch of people that live there. That. That, that's important in a day of exile. And it's important that we live the difference and not just talk it. So you heard me say it a couple weeks ago. If you don't like the way the Supreme Court has defined marriage, honor yours. That is the difference. If you don't like the way ISIS treats their enemies... Then forgive yours. If you think Wall Street is too greedy, then when you have money, give yours away. If you think the kids are going to hell in a handbasket, then you start a family altar. If you think there is no justice on the city streets, then you settle your differences on the way to court. You see, your distinction is not that you have a better argument. Your distinction is that you have a better life. So they look to the, cult, to the side, to the margins, and they say, my goodness, there is a society of weird people who practice Sabbath in a day of hurry and haste. There are people who open up their homes in a day that is suspicious. There are people who are generous when the culture has become greedy. You see it? They see the difference. They may not change. They may not change. Ever. But unless we live the difference, church, they have no choices. They don't even have options. They think that the way they're living is the only way to live and they're stuck.